Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For smaller suppliers, selling to the Defense Department isn't a walk in the park, but things are getting a little simpler. Last month, the department enacted a long-awaited rule change that prohibits prime contractors from flowing unnecessary contract clauses down to their subcontractors. More changes meant to simplify commercial buying in DOD are still in the rulemaking pipeline. Dan Ramish is counsel at the law firm Haynes Boone. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what these changes mean. Dan, thanks for joining us. And, and before we talk about what this rule actually does, I, I'd like you to help us explain to our listeners a little bit the scope of the problem. Certainly, there are always going to be some number of clauses that get flowed down, you know, by operation of other parts of the FAR or statute. But I think what we're talking about here is uh, prime contractors larding up their contracts with clauses that don't have to be in there just to be safe. Is that about right? And and how much of that goes on on a day-to-day basis? Thanks, Jared. So I think anyone who has dealt in any significant way with federal government subcontracts has encountered the kitchen sink flowdown approach, where a prime contractor will include essentially all of the flowdowns that are in its its prime contract with the federal government without any discretion over what does or does not apply. And sometimes there's additional language included in that, but too often the easiest thing for the prime to do is just flow down the kitchen sink. And of course, this presents risk for commercial product and services companies and other subcontractors. And it also presents issues for the federal government that wants this streamlined approach that doesn't drive away non-traditional defense contractors. And so to what extent does this new rule limit that? How much does it help? So this new rule eliminates prime contractors' discretion to include clauses that are not required by the FAR or DFARs. So the the way that the FAR approaches flowdowns for commercial products and services and the DFARs approaches it uh, is different. So the FAR specifies specific lists of flowdowns depending on whether the prime contract is for a commercial product or service or non-commercial, there are, there are different lists. On the DFARS side, DFARS clauses each individually either require flowdown or don't and specify whether there is an exception for commercial products or services or only for commercially available off-the-shelf items. And if there is no exception for COTS or for commercial products or services, the clause needs to be flowed down if it's otherwise applicable and if flow down is required in subcontracts. So uh, what the new language in the DFARS uh, 252, 244, 7000, the subcontracts for commercial products or services clause will do is says prime contractors can only include in commercial products or services subcontracts at any tier, the lists in the FAR at the various locations within the FAR the clauses in the DFARs that specify that they must be flowed down without exempting commercial products or services or COTS items. And that's it. They don't have any discretion to include additional FAR or DFARs clauses. Now, that said, there is an ability for a prime contractor or higher tier subcontractor to address the requirements from the prime contract elsewhere in their terms and conditions for commercial products or services. And they need to do that. There are cases where some prime contractors would have flowed down clauses because they need to for their prime contract, but even though those aren't mandatory clauses. So I'll give you some examples. Sure. The 
convenience termination clause. The prime contract allows the government to terminate the prime contract for convenience. Prime contractor needs to be able to terminate subcontracts and supplier agreements for convenience as well. That's not a mandatory flowdown, but it makes business sense. And they they don't get their relief is going to be limited from the federal government if they don't have the ability to terminate lower tier agreements. The changes clause, the federal government says they have the ability to make changes within the general scope. The prime contractor needs to be able to make the same changes in lower tier agreements with subcontractors and suppliers. And uh, the Buy American Trade Agreements Act uh, obligations also aren't mandatory flowdowns, but are restrictions on the sourcing of the prime contractor and need to the obligation to supply end items that are compliant with those statutes must be able to be flowed down. And in the case of the Buy American Act, uh, that includes instances of components that need to be compliant with domestic sourcing requirements. So uh, all these are examples where prime contractors, in some cases, might have taken the path of least resistance and just flow down exactly the same clause that was in the prime contract, often with some additional language that explains substitution of terms to make it make the obligations between the prime and the sub similar to the relationship between the government and the prime. Now, prime contractors are going to have to revisit their terms and conditions for commercial products and services to give themselves the rights they need in their subcontracts and supplier agreements to make sure they can uphold their obligations to the government in their prime contracts. And as I understand it, there's also language in the new rule that applies not just to prime contractors, but also tries to impose some discipline on DOD contracting offices, restricting them from adding some unnecessary clauses at the prime level too, right? How How does that work? So there is new language. It actually comes uh, directly from the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act that says that the contracting officer shall not use other FAR or DFARS provisions and clauses except for those that are required by the FAR or DFARS or consistent with customary commercial practices. So that's uh, specifically a limit limitation on what the agency can do, what the what DOD, the DOD contracting officer can do in including additional clauses that aren't mandatory in uh, contracts for commercial products or services. Now, there there is some question as to how this will actually play out uh, because under FAR Part 12, there is an ability to seek a waiver to get around customary commercial practices uh, in commercial product or services contracts. So it, it's not clear whether this will limit that uh, in the case of FAR DFARS clauses. Uh, that is a little bit uncertain, but it should be a discouragement from including extra non-required FAR DFARS clauses in DOD commercial product and services contracts. Just almost a side note, as you said, this implements language that Congress passed in the 2017 NDAA, which would have been passed in late 2016. So seven years to translate statute into the final rule. I mean, I, I knew the DFARS rulemaking process was slow, but is it always this slow? Unfortunately, that's all too common. And actually, there are a number of other provisions of the same section of the 2017 NDAA that are still pending. And, you know, it it underscores some of the complexity. One, one of the other things that Congress said in the 2017 NDAA was that DOD needs to define what subcontract means. The 809 panel had said there were numerous different definitions of subcontract. And this is a very basic and important term when it comes to flowdowns uh, and obligations of, of primes and subcontractors uh, under the FAR. And so DOD was looking at, at doing that, and actually the pro- proposed rule had uh, included subcontract 
definition language in various provisions. And in the final rule, they, they back that out because the FAR has a parallel rule addressing the same issue. So that's one of the complexities where sometimes the DAR Council and the FAR Council are operating in parallel, and there are a lot of moving parts. And mind you, every year a new NDAA comes out, and sometimes the interplay between one year's NDAA and the next year's adds additional complexity. So I can understand it, but it certainly makes life more difficult for contractors. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I kind of want to wind up toward the beginning of where we started, which was you, you made a comment that um, that having unnecessary flowdowns creates risk for subcontractors. Can you just share a little bit what you mean? What kind of risk is involved when you've got clauses that, that don't need to be there? Sure. Well, it's possible for flowdown clauses to impose additional obligations uh, compliance obligations. I think that's that's the main thing. And and in many cases, you're dealing with companies that may be non-traditional defense contractors, and they don't even have a full understanding of what their obligations are or are not. And it's a real disincentive for those companies to even participate in the defense market because because of the uncertainty about what the requirements are for them under the contract. They, they look at this massive list of flowdowns, and they see a lot of very onerous requirements, cybersecurity, domestic sourcing, and there are new requirements every year. And that is a real scary thing for companies that are not sophisticated in this area and are new to this area. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney at the Haynes Boone Law Firm, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.